exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. While you're turning, I know some of you may be wondering, why are we once again in the book of Psalms instead of the Gospel of John? Well, even though I was really eager to get back into the Gospel of John, I had about a dozen of our members notify me in one way or another that they wouldn't be in attendance. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm overjoyed that, that we have this many in attendance and this many were able to make it. Um, it really is just my, my confused little Louisiana heart will never comprehend how you guys make it. Um, but, but it's a... It's a joy that you're here. And, and as I was thinking, you know, maybe we should just take a break from John for a week and go to a, a sermon, a single psalm sermon. This was the first text in my mind, um, you know, if we only have a, a small group. And as I was preparing and working on it more and more, I said, oh, I wish I could give this to the whole church because this is such a glorious text. It's one of my favorite psalms, if not my favorite psalm in, in the book of Psalms. Um, and so now here you are. And I am excited to bring the word of God this morning. So, so turn with me to Psalm 127. And Lord willing, next week we'll finish the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. But before we dive in, let me give you a little background information on our text. This psalm is actually part of a group of psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. If you look down and you're there in Psalm 127, you should see a little note that says, A Psalm of Ascent of Solomon. Now, if, you've remember, if you remember as we've been studying the Gospel of John, it just seems about every other chapter, Jesus is traveling to the city of Jerusalem for some kind of feast and festival. And that's because there were three different festivals that all the men in Israel were required to travel to every single year. And even though it was only the men who were required to attend, often the families would come as well and the wives, and so it was a huge affair but people were constantly traveling from wherever they lived to the capital of Jerusalem. And when King Solomon built the temple, he decided to write several songs for the people to sing as they were ascending the mountain to head to the temple. If you were ever on an old road trip before uh, smartphones and, and uh, things like that, you'd remember you'd probably sing some road trip songs. Um, you know, a hundred bottles of beer on the wall. But I know we're Baptists, so it'd be a hundred bottles of milk on the wall. But you would sing these songs, and, and these songs were written to put certain ideas and themes and objects in the people's mind as they traveled together. And, and as they would travel, Jerusalem was built on a hill itself, and the highest point in Jerusalem was the temple. And so as they were ascending the hill, they would sing these songs of ascent. So that's why they're called the songs of ascent, because they would be literally climbing in elevation. And so... The reason I tell you that is that as we read and as we study this psalm, I want in the back of your mind to be thinking temple, Jerusalem, the walls of the city, the temple there, the son of David, the king is there. And that's in the back of our mind as we're studying this, um, just as an afterthought, because that'll be important later, but just to, to set the context for you. But let's pray and then we'll dive into this amazing text. Dear Sovereign Lord, unless you build the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless you watch over the city, the watchman watches in vain. Unless you give light to our eyes, we will study this chapter in vain. So we ask this morning to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything that happens, happens because of the providence of God. 
The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. When he had managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And then he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow and it struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away and that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. It was on that day in 1850 that by the grace of God, Charles Spurgeon was converted. I'll tell you this story because obviously with the snowstorm we just had and the circumstances we we're in, it came to mind. Harvey, Bruce, whoever, you might want to have a sermon ready just in case we have another big one in the future. But I want to, I want to ask you, can you imagine... What would have happened if they had simply canceled the service this morning? They wouldn't have been wrong to do so. Can you imagine if there had not been a snowstorm? Can you imagine if Spurgeon would have stopped somewhere sooner? Or if he had kept walking and stopped somewhere later? But let me tell you, my friends, our God does not lead things up to chance. Our God is the God of signs and wonders. He displays his powers through miracles and plagues. Whenever he so chooses, our God supernaturally intervenes within our world. But the ordinary and regular way that God works in this world is through his providence. When I say God works through, I want you to say providence. God works through? Providence. Providence is not a word we use regularly in the English language. But let me tell you, it's one of my favorite words around. It's one of my favorite words because it says so much in so little. So what is providence, you may ask? Well, it's not just a town in Rhode Island. James Boyce was the founder of the first Southern Baptist Seminary in America. He defined providence in this way. This quote is also in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along and read along. This is what providence is. And I, and I love this definition. He said this, God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures in all events. Yet so as not to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. Everything that happens, everything that happens, happens because of God's providence. From the sunrise this morning to when you take your shoes off at night. From the crowning of kings to the turning of tides. From the fall of Adam to the cross of Christ. Everything that happens, happens because of the providence of God. Now you may be sitting here thinking, well, why does this matter to me? Well, first off, 
It's by the providence of God that you're sitting in this church this morning. Is that by the plan and providence of God, you are here. And just like Spurgeon on that snowy day, you're not here by chance. In fact, there is absolutely nothing that God leaves to chance. And if you could embrace this truth, if you could embrace the truth of God's providence, it's a bottomless source of comfort. God is in control. He is good. He has a plan. Those are sweet words to your soul. You see, my prayer this morning is that you would find peace in God's providence because in Psalm 127, we're going to find two absolute truths, two absolute truths. First, we're going to find that God is absolutely sovereign in verses one to two. And then secondly, we're going to find that children are absolutely a blessing in verses three through five. It seems like a strange disconnect, but I'll explain why you have these two truths in this single psalm. The reason I use that phrase absolute is because when you're dealing with absolutes, there are no exceptions. Absolute truths are rare, but here in this text, we've got two of them for us to study. So let's start with that first absolute truth. God is absolutely sovereign. Look at me to verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In this verse, we find a truth that is devastating to all human pride. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how gifted or how talented you may be. It doesn't matter how much time or energy or effort you put into any single task. Unless God is in it, you are powerless to accomplish it. God is sovereign. He is in control. And and, and this is a beautiful truth. And I remember having a conversation about the sovereignty of God some years ago. And there's a young man that said to me, yeah, I think God is sovereign. God is in control, but he's only in control of the big stuff, not the little stuff. I don't think God cares about us putting on our pants in the morning or things like that. And I didn't know what to say in that moment, in that conversation, but that phrase stuck with me. And I kept thinking about it over and over. And the more and more I thought about it, the more, and the more and more I read the Bible, the less I could agree with that statement. If you look back to verse one, I want you to notice what God is doing and what man is doing. What is God doing in verse one? The Lord is building and the Lord is watching. In Hebrew poetry, the Israelites wouldn't rhyme works like, like we do. They would rhyme ideas. And what we see in verse one is that God is not just in control of construction and national defense, but building is a picture of God's creative power. And watching is a picture of God's protective power. Nothing can be made unless God creates it. Nothing can be protected unless God protects it. So what does that mean for us? Does that mean that we sit back and we do nothing because God is in control of it all and we have no responsibility? No, not at all. If you look at the text, what is man doing in verse one? Man is also building. Man is also watching. But what's the difference? The difference is is that the final outcome is ultimately dependent on whether God is also building and God is also watching. When we think back to the year of 2020, how many of you had plans for that year that actually went through. None of us did. And there's so many other experiences in life where you you were dead set. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. But the Lord wasn't in it. So it did not happen. So if I could go back in time and talk to the person who said, God is only in charge of the big things. I think this is what I'd have to say. Unless God is in it, big or small, 
you can't do it. There's a sense in which if God did not decree or allow it, you could not put your pants on in the morning. You'd have to immigrate to Scotland because you could only wear kilts and you'd just be cursed by pantslessness. I mean, unless God is in it, you could not do it. And I know that's hard to imagine because we do not think like this. We think of of nature and the world around us as, as in these cycles that are unaffected by God's sovereign hand. But all of it is being directed and upheld by him. Everyone who's listening to me right now, everyone stop real quick. And I want you to take in a big breath right now. Breathe in and breathe out. Listen to me, church. Without God providing the air molecules around you and without God giving you lungs to breathe and then blood to distribute that oxygen through your body, you die. It would be absolutely impossible to to do that simple feat that you just accomplished. Uh, Pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul said it this way. If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, he is not God. But he is in control. And he does guide and direct things. He doesn't cause evil. He doesn't violate the free will of the creature, as James Boyce said so eloquently. And either he directs it or allows it, but God is in charge by his providence. Without openly intervening with signs and miracles, God is actively upholding and directing the universe by his sovereign providence. Nothing we try to create, nothing that we try to protect can be created or protected without the hand of Almighty God. This is a life-changing truth because, listen, if you can embrace this reality, if you can embrace this absolute truth of God's sovereignty, your life will not be marked by worry or needless pain or anxiety, but rather your your life will be marked by rest. If you don't believe me, look with me to verse two. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. If you live your life believing that you are the master of your destiny, your life will be marked by anxious toil. We see that Solomon uses that phrase in vain for a third time in the short uh, two verses. A life that is driven by fear and anxiety is a life that will be lived in vain. And listen, I can guarantee there will be days as Christians, as believers, when you will wake up early and when you will go to bed late at night. But the difference for the believer, for those who trust in God's sovereign providence, is that we do not eat the bread of anxious toil. So Jesus himself said, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour of your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? So we as Christians can lay our head on our pillows at night and we can rest knowing that God is guiding all things by his providence. And even the fact that we can rest and sleep is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. True rest, true sleep is a gift of God to those whom he loves. Solomon uses the word beloved here. Usually Solomon uses the word beloved to talk about his wife, to talk about his spouse. But here Solomon says that God gives sleep to his bride, his people, his beloved. The great reformer John Calvin summed it up this way. The, faith, although, the faithful, although they lead a laborious life, yet follow their vocations with composed and tranquil minds. By trusting in the absolute sovereignty of God, we can lay our heads down at night and sleep tight knowing that he is in control. He has a plan, and he's good. 
That's the first absolute truth of Psalm 127, the absolute sovereignty of God. But there's another absolute uh, truth here in this passage, the absolute blessing of children. Look at me to verse three. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now, if you're reading what I'm reading, it seems like Solomon has just drastically changed the subject. What's going on here? Why does Solomon jump from providence to reproduction? He goes from God's sovereignty to children. It seems like a strange transition, but I don't think it's by accident. Even though on the surface, it appears as though Solomon is changing topic, he's actually still talking about the same thing. Solomon is shifting from building a house in verse 1 to building a home in verse 3. If there's one thing that we like to pretend that we can control, it's procreation. It's having children. It's a process that we really want to believe that we are in charge in. But of course, we all know people who have had unplanned pregnancies. And we all know people who, you know, in despair have wanted children and sadly aren't able to have them. But that's why in verse 3, Solomon calls children a heritage. Or some translations will say children are a gift from the Lord. Because even though biologically... Every child is the product of, males, of the male sperm and the female egg. We know that. They come from the mother and the father. But ultimately, every child is a gift given by Almighty God. That's why John Wesley said this. He said, Next to your wife or your children, immortal spirits whom God hath for a time entrusted to your care, that you may train them up in all holiness and fit them for the enjoyment of God in eternity. This is a glorious and important trust. Seeking a soul is of more value than all the world beside. Every child, therefore, you are to watch over them with the utmost care, that when you are called to give an account of each to the Father of spirits, you may give your account with joy and not with grief. Your children are not yours. Your grandchildren are not yours. They are the Lord's. They are a gift from the Lord, and one day they will return to the Lord. But Solomon doesn't stop at calling children a gift. He also calls them a reward. Now, you may be wondering, a reward for what? And I think that in its most basic meaning, children are a reward to those who follow God's command from Genesis to be fruitful and to multiply. There are a number of godly people in the Bible who were not given children for one reason or another, and they were truly godly. Uh, Two of the most famous people in, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ, never married, never had children, as far as we know, for Paul. Uh, For Jesus, we know for a fact. But in fact, the book of Isaiah, God tells us that those who have been called to a holy life of singleness, God is going to give them a name that is better than children. However, that's a sermon for another day. Singleness is a gift. Childlessness has its advantages intrinsically. But I'll also say that that's the exception and not the rule. Because in verse 3, we're confronted with the truth that children are a gift and a reward. And, and I know the look on some of your faces. How is that possible? Have you been around kids? How are they a gift and a reward? We'll keep on reading. Look at me to verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Solomon shifts here from the picture of a gift to the picture of a weapon, an arrow. Why? 
Because with every child who is taught the gospel, who believes it and embraces it, and who is sent out into the world, it's as if a mighty warrior pulls back his bow and shoots an arrow right into the face of Satan himself. Amen? Amen. Solomon does mention that these are the children of your youth. Because I think we acknowledge that you need a lot of energy to train up children in the way they should go. But despite the difficulty of raising children, Solomon still says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. If I were to ask you right now, do you want to be blessed? I'd be surprised if a single person in here would say no. Because when we think of blessing, we automatically, whether we know it or not in our hearts, we automatically think of blessing as money, possessions, security. But imagine if someone asked you, do you want to be blessed? And you respond, yes, please. And they hand you a baby. How many of you would feel very blessed in that moment? Probably not many. Many of us would feel hoodwinked because in our culture, we don't equate children with blessing. Our culture views children as a nuisance and as a burden. I remember when Katie was pregnant, uh, we'd have people all the time coming up to us and say, say goodbye to your free time. You better get sleep now while you can. Enjoy spending time with your wife while you can. And, and the mass majority of these comments that we got, and really she got, were totally unsolicited. They were not asked for. They were overwhelmingly negative, And they largely came from people who would claim to be Christians. And the thing is, I can understand why people feel that way. You do not have the freedoms you had when you were childless. Children are expensive. Sometimes the bills have been overwhelming for the delivery and Katie's pregnancy and and all of those things. You're, You're physically exhausted. Your sleep schedule is now non-existent. But still, all these truths were still true 3,000 years ago when this text was written. But still in Psalm 127, children are described as a heritage, a reward, a blessing. And I think we should all ask ourselves, is my view of children one I got from the Bible or the culture around me? And of course, you may be wondering, you still may have the question, it's a legitimate question to ask, how on earth are children a blessing? Well, I think there's at least three reasons why the Bible calls children a blessing. First, children are a blessing because they inherently bring joy. I don't know if it's emotional or biological, but there's a natural connection between parents and their children that produces happiness. We we all know people who don't believe a word of the Bible, but they still love their kids, and they can even acknowledge that these kids are a blessing. But the second reason that children are a blessing is because all children are made in the image of God. Something unique about Judaism and Christianity that is different from most world religions, it's quite radical, is that God did not command us to make statues and idols and images of him. There's nowhere in the scripture where that's commanded. But what does God do in Genesis? He makes man in his image and he tells us, be fruitful, multiply, send my image to the ends of the earth. There was actually this understanding that when you walked into an ancient city, there would be a god of that city, and there'd be an idol, there'd be a statue in the streets or in the marketplace. And it was this understanding that wherever that idol was, that was that god's territory. And so think about what's being communicated when human beings who are made in the image of God and then sit everywhere, everywhere that humans are, that's God testifying, declaring, this area is mine. I am the God of this territory. I am the king of this domain. You see, every human being, whether they realize it or not, 
They may with their mouth and with their mind openly deny and blaspheme God. But every human being is a testimony to the existence and the glory of God. That's why when we look at children, even when we talk about the arguments that I hear so often for abortion of, of this child will not have a good life. They'll, they'll be poor. They may have this disability. Look, it doesn't matter how a child is going to turn out or what their circumstances may be. They are intrinsically made in God's image. And so they have value whether or not they can produce and be a part of society. Like we don't say that if someone needs to go to a nursing home because they can't work anymore that we should kill them. No, we say they're made in the image of God so we should love them and care for them and protect them. And the same thing with children is that they, they produce nothing. They, they offer nothing to my bank account. They don't help out around the house, but they're made in the image of God and so they're intrinsically valuable. So that's the second way that children are a blessing. But there's a third reason why children are a blessing. Children are a blessing because it was through childbirth that God planned to save sinners. Remember all the way in the beginning I told you this is a song of ascent. This psalm was meant to be sung when you're traveling to Jerusalem, the city where the king reigned and the city where the Lord's temple was. And imagine being an ancient Israelite heading for the temple and you have your animals with you. And you're traveling across the country and you're thinking about your destination. You're getting ready to sacrifice. You're getting ready to be in the presence of Almighty God. And you're traveling, you and the others around you. And you start to sing Psalm 127. And you say, unless the Lord does raise the house, its builders labor in vain. And as you're thinking of the house, uh, the Lord building a house, you may be reminded of the temple, which was also referred to as the house of the Lord. Or you may be reminded that God promised to build King David a house by giving David a son, a household. And this son who would come from David would sit on the throne forever. And as you're singing about the watchmen watching over the city, you're thinking about the great walls of Jerusalem. You're thinking about the watchmen who are on the walls and the great city of Jerusalem. And as you're singing about the blessing of children, you would be reminded that God has promised to bless all nation through one of Abraham's descendants. You see, the Bible says that everyone is cursed who does not live by all the things written in God's law. And that's all of us. That's all of us. Nobody can say, I've kept this law perfectly. All of us break God's commands one way or another. We lie or we gossip. We get arrogant or we get unrighteously angry. Even think about how we're constantly taking pride in our own abilities or accomplishment. But listen, God is the decisive builder. Nothing gets done unless he decrees it or allows it. All things are the result of his providence. But how quick are we to take the credit? How often do we want all the glory for ourselves? All of us are cursed because of our sin, because of our law breaking. But God sent Jesus to be born of a seed of Abraham, to be a blessing to the world. He was born of the Virgin Mary, a descendant of Abraham, the son of David, he was the only one who successfully lived perfectly by everything written in God's law. He is the only one who did not deserve to be cursed, but Jesus became a curse for us on the cross. Because the Bible says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So he was nailed to that wood to take our curse for us. And he took our curse so that anyone who would repent and believe in him would receive the blessing of forgiveness and everlasting life. 
Children are a blessing because they're, they inherently bring happiness. They're a blessing because they're made in the image of God. But the ultimate blessing of this passage is the same blessing we learned about last week in Psalm 2. The ultimate blessing in this passage is to be saved from the wrath of God by trusting in the promised child of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You see, my prayer this morning was that you would find peace in God's providence because in Psalm 127, we found two absolute truths. God is absolutely sovereign and children are absolutely a blessing. So let me ask you, have you embraced these two absolute truths? Do you recognize God's power and work around you? Is your trust really in God or is it in your own abilities? Do you work for the bread of anxious toil or do you have the peace that surpasses all understanding? Do you think of children as a nuisance, as a burden, something to be seen and not heard? Or have you embraced the Bible's attitude towards children? Have you received the blessing that Christ offers in this passage? There is a blessing found in the families we have, but the tr- but trusting in Christ and receiving the ultimate blessing of everlasting life is the main point of this passage, is the temple walk, is the goal. Well, I've got three pastoral charges for you this morning, three ways we can apply the truth of this passage to our lives. Here's the first pastoral charge. Rest in God's providence. Rest in God's providence. On paper, this sounds really easy, but resting in God's providence can be one of the hardest things in the world. Let me do this real quick. Yeah, I just exited out. Yeah, if you want to go to the slide that has the, the two points on it. Okay. And then, um, so that we'll have the song set up for the end. Thank you, Carrie. Um, but once again, we'll go back, resting in God's providence. It sounds like the easiest thing in the world. Oh, just rest. Just, just relax a little bit. But this can be one of the hardest things in the world to do. It's hard because resting in God's providence mean that, means that all of your pride has to die. You are not the hero in the story. You're the damsel in distress. You can do nothing by your own power to save yourself. But guess what? God is gracious and he gives grace and sleep to those who he loves. But I also know that resting in God's providence is hard when we're faced with difficult suffering and trials. I'm not just talking you have a bad day. I'm talking about death and disease and disappointment and poverty If God decrees or permits all things to come to pass, if God is working all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, then listen, believer, there is not a moment of your suffering in this life that is meaningless. All of it has meaning. When you lose your job, when the test results come back and and they're bad, when you lose a loved one, it's not meaningless. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Every pain that you experience in this life is achieving some kind of glory. What does it look like? I have no idea. But when we get to glory, when we get to heaven, we'll look back on our trials and they'll feel light and momentary. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
Every moment of suffering for the Christian is part of God's providential plan. None of it is meaningless. So what does it look like to rest in God's providence? Well, remember Jesus' words. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you. So that's the first charge. Rest in God's providence. Secondly, embrace the blessing of children. Embrace, embrace the blessing of children. On an individual level, this starts by believing what the Bible says about children. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. God gives children not as a penalty nor as a burden, but as a favor. They are a token for good if men know how to receive them and educate them. They are doubtful blessings only because we are doubtful persons. Once you've embraced this mindset, the biblical mindset and positive attitude towards children, do everything you can to love and invest in the children of your life. I've heard, I've heard some grandparents say, I put in my time. Like raising children was a prison sentence and they want really nothing to do with taking care of their grandchildren. You have an obligation to care for, to disciple, to share the gospel with, to love and to serve your grandchildren. It's not a prison sentence. It's a blessing. Embrace it. An arrow is only as powerful, uh, is only a powerful weapon if it's been sharpened and if it's in the hands of a trained archer. Living out Psalm 127 doesn't mean creating a bunch of spoiled brats who you love and spoil. It means teaching, training, discipling, and disciplining your children in your life, whether it be your child, a niece, nephew, grandchild, everyone that you have influence and love for. Now, as a church, I think that we have a, a, peculiar, a peculiar way that we can approach children. We don't have any young children in this church and I've been praying since before I came here that, that we could share the gospel with our neighbors and that we could reach out and we could see that change and we could see new life in this body. But listen, to embrace the blessing of children means that we need to be ready to embrace them with open arms. If a kid comes in and spills his juice on the floor, don't get upset. Praise the Lord that we have a kid in the sanctuary in the first place who can dirty the floor. If you hear a baby crying during a sermon, don't get annoyed. Don't tell them to leave. Instead, praise the Lord that a child is here and pray to God and thank him that the gospel is being passed down to the next generation. Proverbs 14.4 says, Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but increase comes by the spirit of an ox. So let me rephrase it, if you will. Where there are no people, the sanctuary is clean, but increase comes when disciples are multiply. It's easy to keep our church clean when no one is using it. But I'm praying, I'm desperately praying for crayon markers on the walls and coffee stains on the carpet. If that means that we can see God glorified and disciples multiply through the power of the gospel. Amen? Amen? That's the attitude and mindset we need to have towards children as a church, as a people. Third and final pastoral charge. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you have not repented and put your trust alone in the sacrifice of Christ, please do so today. 
He is your only hope for everlasting life. He's your only hope to be free from the curse of mankind, the curse of sin and death. And for those who have already looked to Christ to be saved, keep your eyes fixed on him. He is the focus of this passage. And if all you heard today was a nice sermon about how God's going to take care of you and how great kids are, you have missed the point. The, the, the focus, the, the throttle, the meaning of this passage is focused on Christ. This psalm was written to be sung as the Israelites traveled to the temple. Well, as Christians, we don't need to go to the temple because Christ is our temple. He is the, the, the presence of God come down to earth. He dwelt among us. He is our great high priest, and that's why we don't need a priest anymore. The reason we don't offer sacrifices anymore is because he is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the long-awaited son of David, and he's on the throne, and there is no end to his kingdom. So keep your eyes on Jesus and give all the glory to Christ. Amen. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.